I just turned it on. And there's nobody else. Good morning. Please stand if you're able and join me in singing hymn number 131, We Gather Together. You may be seated. It's summer. I'm all there is. Okay. <laughs> Actually, um, uh, Susan's mother-in-law is going into hospice. So they had a really, really hard weekend. So the reason she's out. And Barbara is in the, you might have been in the sanctuary this morning. Yeah. You've seen her more than I've seen her. Okay. <laughs> Uh, if you've not had a chance yet, if you would take just a moment to register your attendance, give us your information. I actually ran into somebody two weeks ago who sits here every week for years, <laughs> and they're not on the email list. Now, if that's intentional, that's okay. But if you would like to receive our updates and stuff, just give us your information, and we'll do that. A um, few announcements. I understand that we have a choir concert today. Who knows about it? Tell us about it. What are we going to get? Or else. And what kind of music? Yummy. <laughs> it's yummy. Okay. Six o'clock tonight, sanctuary, $20. Good cause. Authors Alive. Who knows about Karen Slaughter? I don't, but... Okay. Who kn who's read her? <laughs> Outstanding, I'm sure. <laughs> First Monday. Corruption in Atlanta, I heard that. 
Ah, a little spice in Atlanta. Okay. Uh, first Monday? Hmm? First Thursday? Fire me. Uh, Paul Rasmussen. We, got, we get the date right, and the location right, and the speaker right. The rest is details. Uh, <laughs> Paul's going to talk about how his first year went, which ought to be fascinating. Um, very, very, very rarely is a senior pastor of Methodist Church come from on staff, as in never. Okay. So a lot of churches around the, around the United States, around the world, are kind of watching this, but uh, it should be fun. So July the 3rd. Uh, Rajabian, what are we having this week? Jane? Okay, it's the same thing. Okay. A twofer. You get in. <laughs> I like Jane, whatever. All right, would you stand as we join? Oh, hang on. Let's get uh, something else. Um, this summer, y'all familiar with Tuesday nights? This is for the men. This is a sexist organization. Okay. There's a group that meets on uh, Paul Ditto, it leads on Tuesdays called Tuesday Nights with a, with a K, like with, you know, with the armor type thing. And it's a men's Bible study group. And he's asked me to come in. We're going to do three weeks on science and faith. And then we're going to do 20-something weeks in the book of Revelation. Just every verse, every chapter roll. So if you're a guy and that interests you, uh, that will be coming up in a few weeks. We'll be doing that. Um, the Russia trip is happening. It's coming together. We'll have some information on that very, very soon. And you'll also be getting information about the next trip to Israel, which will be in uh, December of 15. I think in Ju July, June of 15 will be Russia, and this, so those trips are kind of out there. A little early for that, but just in the back of your mind, if that kind of thing interests you. Barbara's not here, but we will stand. <laughs> As Barbara's mother used to say, this is the one true holy and apostolic faith. We will respect it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and the third day he arose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. As we enter into our time of prayer, if you have prayers, uh, concerns, joys you'd like to lift up, again, just a reminder about Susan's mother-in-law, who um, you probably know the story, went in for a very, very minor procedure. And uh, things just went wrong. And uh, so she has basically gone home to, to end her life. So for Susan's mother-in-law, this is our prayer, oh Lord. For others, yes. So for Pat, for her broken hip, and for her healing, which <laughs> will not be easy. This is our prayer, O oh Lord. I have uh, uh, joy and a concern. Uh, the joy is that my cousin's son, Jude, who you may remember was born very prematurely, is now um, 16 pounds, and he's off of oxygen, except for 
So for Jude and for Kate, this is our prayer, O oh Lord. Yes. I think that one surprised the weatherman. I'll guarantee it surprised the weather channel because I checked this one. <laughs> so for the gift of rain, this is our prayer, O oh Lord. Yes. which is always a wondrous and joyous thing to do. <laughs> Rehab. <laughs> yes, for Garth and for his recovery. He had struggled there. He was in and out of ICU a couple of times, but he's now in the right kind of room getting probably more physical therapy than he ever wanted, <laughs> which is okay. So for Garth and his recovery, this is our prayer, O Lord. And for Karen to put up with him, this is our prayer, O Lord. <laughs> So for a for good news, this is our prayer, O oh Lord. If there are not are no others who say aloud, I'm sure we all have uh, issues in our hearts we would share. Uh, but let's unite all these together as we join together in the prayer that uh, Jesus gave as a model of how to approach our heavenly Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. As our ushers come forward, let us uh, dedicate ourselves and our gifts to God and God's work.
table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup Jennifer, Greg, thank you. This is one of those days, okay? We're not going to finish today, and that's going to be okay. Um, there's some really, really wonderful material here. I want to do a little bit of uh, this kind of a backstory, though. Um, our goal is to really try to understand what Jesus said meant, okay, in its original context as much as we can uh, re recapture that. <laughs> What was Jesus saying? What was he trying to get across? We've got some problems. For the first part, Jesus spoke what language? Aramaic. New Testament is written in, and we speak. You see the problem? <laughs> Three degrees of separation. Um, another piece of this is, is that, and it doesn't show up in English. Uh, a lot of times when Jesus is saying these Beatitudes, He's using the exact same language of Isaiah, okay? And the, his original audience would have known this. And, and as he speaks these, these uh, Beatitudes, they would have heard echoes, not just of Isaiah, but of a particular passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he's anointed me to proclaim what? To the blessed or the poor. Release to the captives, comfort for those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. You get it? There's a clear connection here, so we want to look at that a little bit today. Um, we're just going to see how far we get. So last week, we kind of looked at the Beatitudes as a whole. Um, this is a type of a saying that's pre-Jesus by thousands of years. The oldest, we didn't mention this last week, but the oldest Beatitudes we know go actually back to some writings found in Egypt that are basically over a thousand years before Christ. So this is called wisdom tradition or wisdom literature. Uh, there are multiple examples of uh, Beatitudes in the Old Testament. We looked at a few of those. Uh, we know that these Beatitudes appear to be a collection. Uh, they're found uh, to a lesser degree. Matthew's got nine of them. Uh, do you remember how many Luke has? And Thomas has uh, three or four, depending how you divide it. But yeah, the, so the, the larger collection actually is in the, the, the book of Matthew. So what we want to do today is, this, is 
we'll just see how much time we got, how far we get, uh, to look at these individual Beatitudes and see if we can sort of peer back. Now, one other little, little backstory. There's a real difference between the ancient world and our world. For example, um, when we read a novel today, we have plot, right? Everybody knows what plot is. The story develops in a particular direction. We also have character development, right? Characters change. Uh, you probably know, many of you probably know this. In the ancient world, there was no such thing. They had no concept of development of a character. So they, they arrived full-blown. That's why the infancy stories of Jesus that we find outside the Bible, basically he's a little 30-year-old, you know, kind of run. And that was true of, of not just the, of these, these other writings like that, but it had been ancient world. That's the way they thought. Uh, they actually, their view of sex was the man implanted in the woman, a little miniature, homo euclis, little miniature human being. They knew nothing about eggs. The another piece of this, which affects directly what we're going to do today, they had no concept of psychology. They had no concept of the interworld. Now, that's huge for us. Uh, and the reason this becomes important is because we have a tendency to psychologize the Beatitudes. That what we're really talking about is some kind of inner qualities, inner issues, inner struggles, and that is not what Jesus is talking about. When you look at Scripture, when you look at the prophets, and you look at the Psalms, and you look at all that, that things, you know, not that they didn't have feelings, not that they didn't have, which they did, but when the psalmist cries out to God, for, you know, uh, he's crying out to God because externally, outside of his body, there are things that he's suffering from, whether it's his personal enemies or it's a national enemy or whatever. So, again, as we look at these, we, we kind of need to make that transition. So we'll do that over and over. Now, Matthew, and I, I'm thinking it is probably Matthew, has arranged these nine Beatitudes. Uh, Jesus said more than nine, and we probably don't have all the ones he said. He could have said hundreds. But the way that Matthew's organized this as an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount is a summary uh, of Jesus' teaching. It, it falls into three groups. First, the first four really are, are basically four ways of saying the same thing. And what they're talking about is the audience that Jesus is speaking. Would it surprise you that, uh, that Jesus is probably not speaking these to the ruling elites in Jerusalem at the temple? Okay, it wouldn't surprise you. So who's he talking to? The people. And he's probably, uh, most likely this is in Galilee. And most likely these are the people who are at the lower strata of society. And they make much more sense in terms of that. Secondly, we then have three that, that shift off that topic. And now the topic really is, what are the qualities that Jesus would have us aspire to? Or to use Jesus' language, what are the qualities of the kingdom of God? What things in our lives can manifest the, the, the kingdom of God. And third, there are two that are kind of controversial because uh, even the way they're worded and the way they're framed and the terminology they use is, is different from any of the others. Uh, and they deal with an issue that's persecution, which is not likely to be something he would address the crowds with. To be persecuted for my sake implies they're already followers and that they're recognized as followers, and they're getting flack for it. Okay. So those two were probably said at a different time and different place. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's just Matthew was adding that. The problem is, is that these uh, Beatitudes of, of uh, persecution 
are found in Matthew, Luke, and Thomas, which tells you they're not Matthew. They predate Matthew. They go back to Q, at least, and maybe go beyond that. So for that reason, there's been a shift in, in contemporary scholarship thinking to persecute, and we know from other stories that Jesus' disciples did catch a lot of flack, and they were persecuted. This is not an after-Jesus church issue alone. So we're going to look at these three sections. I best guess is we won't even get to number three, handouts. So I'm, I'll let that one go. Okay. Jesus begins by some descriptions of the audience that he is speaking to. Uh, those who are blessed. All right. I was raised with blessed. You all raised blessed? Okay. I guess it's you say potato, I say potato. Okay. Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you take the last two Beatitudes away, the two that are kind of questionable, the remaining seven have a symmetry to them. The first and the seventh both end, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so it looks like these seven kind of function as a deal. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Luke has a slightly different form. Blessed are the poor. When we get to hunger, it's with Matthew, it's hunger and thirst for. And when it's Luke, it's just hungry. Yeah, when you're hungry. Okay, Luke's are very literal. Uh, for again, yours is the kingdom of God. So it's obviously looks like the same beatitude, just remembered in, in two slightly different kinds of ways. And you'll find this in commentaries. It looks like when you first look at it that Matthew's has probably been what the term we would use today is spiritualized psychologized internalized so that if you're if you're uh, poor in spirit it's no longer dealing with the external world it's no longer dealing with poverty what's it dealing with something in here and obviously that that's a kind of modern way of doing it so poor in spirit Luke's seems earthy it seems more original and you'll find many commentaries that say that if, if and it, it's a guess, who knows, but if you were going to guess which one, if you were there that day and you'd actually heard what Jesus said, more likely you would have heard poor, not poor in spirit. Now, what's striking, though, is you begin to get in and look at these two things and you begin to work backwards from English to Greek to Aramaic, this distinction and these differences start slipping away. And it looks like these are a lot closer than they appear to be in English. Poor in spirit originally meant something very different. For example, you can just toss out any psychology, period. They didn't have it. They didn't think in those terms. So poor in spirit has to have some kind of a reference to the world outside you. It's not an internal type of thing. It's, it's some type of relating to the world around you. Uh, it's not primarily about humility or deferential. How many sermons have you heard on poor in spirit that that's what it's really about, okay? Makes a great sermon, and it's worth preaching, and it may be true, probably not what Jesus would originally said, although it's also true that you can go to the Scriptures ten times and get ten different meetings, right? And that's not a bad thing. That's the power of Scripture. Luke's poor, on the other hand, is also not as simple as it first looks. Because I think poor, I'm thinking empty pockets, right? I'm thinking lack of, you know. Well, in the ancient world, and in our world too, the poor 
it's not just a matter of money. It's what the lack of money does to you. And that larger kind of issue. Now, the poor in Greek, uh, tokoi, uh, has some interesting meanings. At one level, it means of little value and relatively worthless. This is not money we're talking about. This is the person. The poor are those who are marginalized. Those who have been shoved to the edge of society, who have no value in society, and are kind of looked down on. Would that still ring true in today's world to some degree? Right. Now, it has another meaning, too. It also has the connotation of those who are without hope. And this is probably the thing that Jesus is connecting with. And it's still true today. Those who are poor, who are marginalized, um, they, do not, they don't have the capacity to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Okay? They're not self-made people. They're not successful. What are they? They're struggling. And they're really struggling hard. So their attitude toward the world, and guess what? Their attitude towards God is going to be different from the self-actualized, your own bootstraps, successful kind of individual. And that has to do with the, the audience. Again, we're talking probably about people who've been left behind the margins, who have no options of hope or worldly success, um, which is interesting because, again, you've got to get behind English, and you've got to get behind Greek, and you've got to get to Aramaic and Hebrew, both, turns out. The language here, is particularly of the first two Beatitudes, just jumps off the page as almost a quote of the prophet Isaiah. You remember when Jesus went to Nazareth, his uh, first sermon? Goes to the synagogue, takes the Torah scroll, rolls it out to Isaiah 61, reads the words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, release to the captive, comfort to those who mourn and downhearted. Sits down and says, Today these words are fulfilled. Okay. The Beatitudes are right down that lane as well. Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me. He has sent me. What have you been sent for? Look at the first two. Good news to the oppressed, bind the bug and heart. Now, in English, does the word oppressed look like the word poor? Okay. Now, you can make a connection, right? Why are you, po why are you poor? Well, you could be oppressed. You could be you know, marginalized kind of thing. Well, it turns out that it doesn't work in English, but if you work it backwards... The word that's translated as oppressed, NRSV, has the same root as the word that Jesus uses for the Beatitudes. In Aramaic, they're the same. In the language of Jesus, they're the same. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor, his audience would have heard Isaiah 61. You know, we don't, because again, the language is a little bit harder. Those who are oppressed in Isaiah are the same group that Jesus seems to be addressing here. And again, it's the same root word. Two different forms. It's not exactly letter for letter, but it's two forms of the same root. Okay. Now, do you remember Tevye and Fiddler on the, Fiddler on the Roof? Yeah. Uh, he said something to the effect about poverty. It's not such a great blessing. <laughs> Your Jewish attitude there, you know. Uh, it's an odd thing. Blessed? Blessed? Poor? No money, marginalized, shoved to the side. Uh, 
Now, except for one little thing, those who are poor and who have nothing and are not self-made often are the people who are most open to God. Make sense? When you have nothing, are you open to the possibility of help? Many people have observed over the centuries that, that, that uh, it's like they used to say there's no atheist in foxholes. You know, it, it, it ceased being academic. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly became very, very real. The same thing with, with, with the poverty here. Um, you know, many stories of people who w in the periods of life when, when things went well, maybe God wasn't as important as when it all fell apart. And then they suddenly said, maybe there's something there I've been got. They've got to rely on God. They have nothing else. Uh, so what Matthew probably means by poor in spirit uh, is exactly what we're talking about. Uh, now, another little story. Do you remember this story? Suffer the little children to come unto me. Again, 40,000 sermons written on this. What quality does a child possess that would make them potentially easier to grasp the kingdom or if we're more like that we might easy more easy grasp the kingdom just think about it. what quality is it what Spirit. innocence trust, trust. imagination, imagination. Yeah. yeah dependence on yeah and just start to build that yeah they're not cluttered yeah we want them to keep that as long as they can at least to the mid-20s and it's time to grow up and move out okay uh <laughs> Spe speaking of the parent of somebody in their 20s, okay, there comes a time. Um, probably when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, and when Jesus says, suffer the children to come unto me, it's exactly the same message to exactly the same kind of uh, uh, audience. There are qualities of being people that just inherently make us more open and receptive to God, and there's some things in life that can make that receptivity a little harder. And again, no surprises here. They're not self-reliant. They know they need help and they need God. Uh, by the way, there was a sociological study. Would you be surprised to know that there's a direct, ex outside the park cities. <laughs> the park cities is, Texas is anomaly. Outside the park cities in Texas, do you think there's more churches in poor neighborhoods or wealthy neighborhoods? Direct proportion. Now, they're smaller. The, the, the attendance in worship, higher. The attendance in Sunday school, higher. Membership in the church, higher. Uh, amongst lower socioeconomic groups. Now, we're the anomaly. Uh, where, what place in the United States has more churches per capita than any place in, in North America? And you're living in it, okay? Uh, We're in the, you know, the South. We're in the Bible Belt. As jokingly said, we're the buckle on the Bible Belt. Uh, but there's something about Texas and Dallas in particular that that part of our culture society, which has changed in many places around the country, has not changed here. It's still in sociologically to go to church. And there's a place in the United States that simply is not true kind of thing. So we're, that's a whole different issue. I'm not even sure what that's about, but there's kind of an anomaly there. Uh, 
people who live in Dallas and this area, then they move somewhere else and try to find a church like the one they've had here, have a hard time. They really do. Uh, so again, this may be one of the reasons that Jesus' ministry is focusing on this group is that I'm thinking they're a little more receptive than the people running the temple. That's <laughs> my guess. And when I think of the people that Jesus clashed with, who did he clash with? The people running the temple and the self-righteous. We'll look at one of those stories here in just a second. So second one, Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Straightforward, and we have an understanding of that. Now, Luke, mourn, weep. That's not a jump, is it? Okay, mourn, weep, same thing. How do you like Luke's version? The laugh. They've gone beyond comfort. They're just going to laugh. I'm wondering who they're laughing at. That's the only thing I've not figured out yet. Okay. Uh, most likely, the first four Beatitudes are not describing four different groups of people. This seems to be considered. It's not we have the poor over here, we have the meek over there, we have you know those who mourn over there. These are probably multiple descriptions of the same audience that Jesus is working with. And again, we go right back to Isaiah 61. We have two things, bind up the brokenhearted and provide for those who mourn in Zion. Uh, and again, the term mourn or weep in the Beatitude and the term brokenhearted in Isaiah, would it surprise you that in Aramaic, same word. And then you also have the word, the word, the word weep there. Um, again, there seems to be a real connection there. Those who mourn and those who weep, again, we jump to the psychological side which is fine, and there's nothing wrong with that unless you're trying to understand what Jesus was trying to say to his original audience. Then we might want to hold back on that a little bit and, and work it a little bit. You know, um, Again, not how they thought in the older world. Uh, most likely, the, the consensus is that, that Jesus is referring to a particular kind of mourning, probably not the inner psychological mourning of, of loss, but the kind of mourning that would be caused because of external circumstances and how those external circumstances are impacting your life. This would be in the Bible what we refer to as a lament. Okay. You've looked at the Psalms. There are Psalms of thanksgiving. There are Psalms of praise. There are Psalms that trace the history of Israel. One of the types of Psalms are laments. There's individual laments and there's corporate laments. A lament, though, in the Old Testament, if you go read them, I can't think of a single lament in the book of Psalms that's ever talking about something internal. You know, God, deliver me from my enemies. God, deliver your people Israel from the Assyrians. It's always in dialogue with, with the world and how the world is impacting us. In other words, what we're dealing with is a cry for justice in res respect to the world. You know, the cry is literally a paraphrase to say, how long, O Lord? The Jews have hope that God will deliver. The Jews have hope that God will manifest God's justice. But have they seen it yet? No. And so there's a cry for this. Uh, they look for, uh, for redemption, for deliverance. Uh, and again, we tend to kind of focus inward. No surprise there. Uh, more likely, Jesus is referring to pain caused by oppression. And the kingdom can address this. Uh, now, an interesting thing, when we talk about mourners, there's maybe not you personally, but there's a tendency in our society to kind of pity those who are sad, mourn. Is that, would that be a fair assessment? There's a tendency there. 
Uh, they've got their lives ripped apart for whatever the reason. Uh, but on the other hand, think about those people. No atheists in the foxhole. Okay? They are people likely to be more open, more receptive to God and to God's message. That could be a blessing. You know, uh, you know when we deal with death and we deal with suffering and we deal with tragedy, and we try to make sense of it, sometimes people say it's part of God's plan or all those kinds of statements. But, but truth be told, there in, you know, Paul talks in all these letters about, uh, this is not what he said, but you know, you know the old statement, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And Paul talks about suffering leads to endurance and endurance to character, it makes us stronger. There is a truth here. And the truth is, is that these kinds of experiences do have a silver lining. And the silver lining is, even though it may be a horrendous experience, that experience possibly can make you more open, more receptive to God. So best guess is, this seems to be what Jesus is uh, against. And again, any of y'all uh, read spiritual type stuff? You ever heard the phrase, the dark night of the soul? The great spiritual, I think it was St. Teresa of Avalon, uh, who basically first used that term, or th that I'm aware of, but it's been used many. Within the great spiritual s giants of our faith, when they, when they do an autobiographical sketch, and they talk about their lives, and they talk about how they grew in their relationship with God, and how they became people that we later would call saints, there's a pattern. And the pattern seems to be the great spiritual breakthroughs are almost always preceded by the dark night of the soul. As though it is the experience of suffering, it is the experience of sorrow and trauma that somehow provides the fodder for that, that breakthrough in the next thing. And again, best guess is this is where Jesus is headed. Again, we psychologize, probably Jesus is not intending to do that. Uh, you familiar with the term eschatological? Greek word uh, eschaton means the end. It refers to ultimately out there, uh, at some point God will be faithful. At some point God will bring God's kingdom. At some point God will send the Messiah. At, God, at some point God will bring justice. At some point God will make it right. That's the eschaton. So the idea here is, and we have references to the constitution, this is the, the beatitude is not saying that, you're going to that you have this. But it's part of the hope. God will do this. You need to hang in there. Um, by the way, uh, again, look at Isaiah 49. Sing for joy. Kind of like laughter, O heavens. Exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his suffering ones. Now, it's interesting because if you go back and you, this is something you may want to do. Go read Isaiah 49. Because we've just heard that what's God going to do? God's going to comfort God's people. Okay, that sounds you know, like, I'm sorry you're feeling bad type thing. The rest of the chapter goes on to describe how God will do that uh, with external circumstances, saying things like, thus says the Lord God, I will soon lift up my hands to the nations. But how's God going to make you feel better? God's going to deal with Assyria. God's going to deal with Babylon. God's going to deal with Persia. God, in other words, it's, it's, again, we, we psychologize, but Isaiah is not and Jesus is not. 
Those who mourn will be comforted with the consolation of Israel. Do you remember the story of Simeon in the Old Testament? And Luke, the birth narratives, you got Simeon and Anna. Uh, it's interesting that when the prophets, Simeon and Anna, both behold the child in the temple when Jesus is brought into eight days, they both use the language of the consolation of Israel, that this child will bring forth that which is vivid. This is why when Isaiah says God will provide, and their prayers are answered. Okay, Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek. This is another one that in terms of the way we think, that does not make a whole lot of sense. What's your experience of the meek? This is Texas, right? <laughs> Roadkill, okay, <laughs> right? The meek get flattened. That's my experience. Is that your experience? Yeah. Uh, so to say they will inherit the earth, I was slight, slightly counterintuitive, you know. Usually I'm not seeing the meek inherit much except pain and suffering kind of thing. Now, no, no parallel. This is not in Thomas. This is not in Luke. Uh, but would you know that it's in Isaiah? It's interesting how many times Isaiah comes back. Isaiah 29. Now, this is not a beatitude, but it's the same statement. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And then this is Hebrew, Hebraic parallelism. So the meek and the neediest people are the same. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the neediest people shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. Very similar kind of thought, just not in attitude. Again, third group. Probably we're not talking about three groups. We're talking about three characteristics of a group that Jesus would be speaking to. And again, it's kind of counterintuitive in our world. Um, if you've read any of the ancient uh, literature of the Greco-Roman Empire, you know that one of the things that particularly irritated the Romans, there's a lot about us that irritated them. They thought we were cannibals, you know, things like that. Uh, one of the things that irritated them is Rome did not value meekness. Would that be a fair assessment? <laughs> yeah, you know. that uh, the Romans were probably the first but not the last to call Christianity a religion of losers. Right? And particularly because it attracted women and children and slaves and made them equal to everybody else. So all this stratification in society that the faith just kind of did away with. And uh, remember Nietzsche? Friedrich Nietzsche? Same kind of comment. And then remember what's Karl Marx's famous statement? Religion is the opiate of the people. Not a real fan of meekness, okay? Uh, so Jesus, to be added to you, the term meek is being used in a different way. Um, it is probably being used in the sense of an attitude towards God, which in a sense would be a, a parallel to humility. Uh, they're meek or humble, uh, or in Isaiah's language, they, they are, I like Isaiah's language, they are needy towards God. Isn't that a delightful phrase? Needy towards God. Now, what would be the opposite of being needy towards God? Arrogance would be a good, good deal. Did Jesus ever encounter arrogance? Okay. Um, now, see if we, it's here. Um, there's a story. Uh, remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, both who come before the, the altar of God to pray. 
He also this told this parable of someone who trusted in themselves. Now that's a turn of phrase. Who they trust in? They trust in themselves. That they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up, and that, that's what prompts this. So Jesus responds when he sees this by telling this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, sometimes translated publican. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, even like this miserable tax collector. I fast twice a week. By the way, Jewish law requires you fast how often? This is works of super irrigation. He's going above and beyond. Yeah. He gives a tenth of all my income. Torah requires he gives a tenth of some of his income. Okay. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up at the heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful on me, a sinner. So Jesus sees arrogance, tells a parable, two types of attitude, one self-righteous, I've got it all together, I'm, you know, I'm hitting on all cylinders, and the other one says, I got nothing. I just have nothing here. I tell you, this man who got nothing went down to his home justified rather than the one who had everything. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Make sense? This is probably exactly what the beatitude is dealing with. So tax collector would be an example of someone who's meek, who's humble, who's needy towards God. And by the way, in Jesus' book, that's okay. That's a good thing. That's a positive thing. Um, poor, poor in spirit would also fit that. Now, the promise here is an interesting one, that the meek shall inherit the earth, not something you're likely to see in the next 48 hours. Okay. Now, what's interesting is this beatitude appears to be almost a paraphrase of one of the Psalms, Psalm 37, 8. Those, well, there are several versions of it. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew the strength. That's not this one. That's Isaiah. This is Psalms. Those who wait on the Lord, there it is, they shall inherit the earth. Not grabbing it, but waiting. The beatitude in the psalm, same attitude, same promise, and the same end result. They will inherit the land. They will inherit Israel. Which is a way of saying that Jesus is not teaching anything different from the tradition. It just fits. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, and this is Matthew, so we add, for righteousness, for they will be filled if you take that literally I guess they're filled with righteousness okay blessed are you who are hungry now for you will be filled Luke again takes it pretty much straightforward best guess we've not talked shifted to a different group of people we're still talking about the same group of people we're talking about a different quality uh, this is the poor in spirit this is the meek those the mourn, all the same thing. Uh, Luke addresses literal hunger. Uh, Matthew is a different kind of hunger. You might call it a hunger for God's kingdom. What was the word he used? Righteousness. Does anybody remember what the word in Hebrew and Aramaic is for righteousness? Hesed. The word hesed, which is very interesting because the word hesed shows up in the... Uh, in several places. It's that uh, sometimes Hesed's also translated as justice. 
righteousness, justice, the way that God would have things to be. Um, and again, it, it looks like first glance, modern mindset. You got probably Luke talking about what Jesus said. Matthew wants to change it, internalize it a little bit. Probably not what's going on. Uh, those who hunger and thirst literally because of oppression and those who hunger and thirst for God's kingdom. Do you think there's possibly a relationship between the two? Best guess is there's a direct relationship between the two. Matthew's spiritualization, poor in spirit, hunger and thirst for righteousness, reminds us that when you're dealing with suffering, there are always underlying issues and causes behind the suffering. There's a deeper issue here. Uh, if, you're, if you're suffering, what's driving that? And the God's kingdom will address this issue, which is the cry for justice. Now, the next three, I tell you what, we're going to stop here and save that for you. Thoughts? Anything with the first four kind of come to mind? Wow. <laughs> the different? Yeah. Not that it's wrong unless you're trying to understand what Jesus originally meant. Okay. One, of the, one of the issues that the early church dealt with is um, this whole issue of exegesis. When, you, when four people go to a Bible text and come out with four different interpretations, does that mean at least three are wrong? No, no, it doesn't. God can, through the Holy Spirit, God can speak to you and God can speak to me in slightly different ways in the same text. What we're doing is just a little different. When you open that up and, and the, the psychological part jumps at you, that's not bad. That could be the Holy Spirit addressing you using those words. But if our, our task is a little, little bit different, what do we think Jesus is actually getting at? Best guess, educated guess, scholarly guess, is Jesus is looking around the world he's in, and he's looking at the people, and he's looking at the people suffering. And he's speaking directly to it. Which would explain why Jesus made the fateful decision at the end of his life to go where? To Jerusalem, to the temple authorities. Palm Sunday faces it head on. Huge clash leading to Good Friday and to Easter. There's probably a connection between those two, this and that. They're not disconnected, they're probably connected. And surprisingly, he did address some of the other end. Mary Magdalene was one of them. Uh, some of you may remember we looked at the story of Peter, Peter and his brother who run a small business, Zacchaeus. I mean, you start looking at Bible stories, and all of a sudden you very quickly get to about 16 people who were not among the poor, but who were followers of his, as well as some who couldn't make the jump like the rich young man who went away because he had many you know. So this invitation is not restricted to the poor. And Jesus clearly lays it out there for anybody. Um, at the end of his life, remember the two guys that buried him? Joseph of Arimathea and 
Nicodemus. One of them was in the ruling council of the Sanhedrin. But they responded kind of thing. Yeah. Just an invitation to kind of like, it's always a little bit more complicated. I have no idea what the closing hymn is because I don't want to skip to another 40 slides. We have uh, handouts if you want those. The closing hymn is? 338, I will follow. There you go. Okay, three what? 338. 338, would you stand? Okay, got it. Receive this benediction. And now may the love of God, the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the fellowship that we enjoy in the Holy Spirit be with you and abide with you this day and the days to come.
Go in peace. Amen. Amen.